Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yasmin, today's episode is all about mental health. So I just want to ask you, and I hope it's not too forward. How is your mental health these days? Oh man, you've caught me on a, on a week where I've been thinking a lot about it. And if I'm being totally transparent, I haven't been feeling like myself in the, for the past two weeks. And I know I think we talked about it last week that I got sick. I haven't gotten sick in like two years. And it's interesting because I remember us doing this interview with Uma and thinking, gosh, I have not been eating a lot because I had no appetite. I had had zero movement. I just haven't been doing the quote unquote like wellness things that keep me sane for two weeks. And I 100% felt it. And I feel like this week I'm just trying to get back into meditation in the morning, you know, movement, eating three meals a day, like whatever I need to do to just feel good is like my biggest motivation right now, because I just know that I'm not feeling 100% like myself. Um, And I'm also trying to honor that and not be so hard on myself because, you know, I'm sure a lot of women who are listening in as type A people, if we're not going 100% or feeling good, we can be very hard on ourselves. And I definitely am at fault for that. So I'm just trying to be patient and just remind myself, like, do all the right things that we talk about in all these episodes. Like, I always refer back to that to feel good. So I'm seeing some glimmer of hope, but I'm I'm getting there. But it's definitely been an interesting few weeks for me. But how are you doing? How are you feeling? Yeah, you know, I, I think I can relate in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people that I've been talking to specifically, there's been something around the beginning of this year that's felt just people are feeling a little bit off. I don't know if anybody who's listening can relate to that. And maybe now we're starting to feel that there's some hope or some sort of silver lining. It's really interesting because a lot of functional medicine doctors and people like Dr. Naidu, who we speak with today, they talk about how for so long, the body and the brain were seen as two different things that whatever's going on in the brain is particular for the brain and whatever's going on in the body has nothing to do with it. But we now know that that's so not true. And it's crazy how just those simple habits that you were talking about, like eating really well, exercising Mm -hmm. can make such a big difference in our mental health. That's not to say that things like therapy and medication are not necessary at times that they, they are very necessary. But for example, there are studies that show that exercise can be more powerful than antidepressants. Mm. So that's kind of crazy to hear, right? That, you know, moving our body and taking care of ourselves can have such a profound effect on our mental health. Um, I feel totally in the same boat as you, Yasmin. I'm really trying to do the things to take care of myself. These days, I've been doing a lot of hormone testing, which we'll definitely talk about at some point. I've been seeing just the effects of having a baby on my hormones, my cortisol, all of that. And I can't wait to get into it with anybody who's listening. But um, bottom line is that everything that we talk about makes a huge difference. 
It really does. And well, today's episode is all about mental health and how food can truly impact our mood, depression, anxiety, OCD, and so much more. And we're chatting with our friend, Dr. Uma Naidu, who is a Harvard-trained nutritional psychiatrist. And in this episode, we talk all about foods that can cause anxiety, foods that help with anxiety, the importance of plants and spices in your diets, the role of the gut bacteria on our mental health, which is fascinating, and how we can all support our overall mental health with food. Dr. Uma Naidu is a Harvard-trained nutritional psychiatrist, professional chef, and author of the bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Food. She founded and directs the first and only hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the U.S. She is also the director of nutritional and metabolic psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and director of nutritional psychiatry at the MGH Academy, while also serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Super impressive. Mm -hmm. She has a new book coming out very soon, which we talk about in this interview. It's all about anxiety and how food can support our mental health. We love this interview and we think you will too. So let's get into it. Welcome. Um, We're so excited to have you here. I first want to start off talking about the connection between nutrition and mental health. I think there's a lot of people who still don't understand that there is a connection between those two things. So on a big picture level, can you talk about the connection between what we eat and our mood, how we feel, and just how we show up on a day-to-day basis? Thank you for the question. Thanks for this great invitation. I'm really excited to talk to you both, big fans of what you both are doing. You know, it's such a great question because I feel as though what drew me into this field and really moving it forward was that people cared about a type 2 diabetes in their family or their weight um, or even cardiac disease, all of which are important. But no one was focusing in on what food did to the brain. And that really is what nutritional psychiatry is not only about, but what the movement has brought forward. Part of that unfolded because of the newest science of the gut microbiome in the last couple of decades um, that helped us not only elucidate this connection, but understand it better and be able to use foods in a more positive way for our everyday lives, how we show up, um, how we feel, what can we do to change any of those emotions. Yeah, I definitely feel a difference in terms of um, what I eat and my mood. So I'm so excited that you're here with us today because Kay and I have a million questions about all this. But I'm curious, Dr. Naidu, you know, you're a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a chef. At what point in your career did you decide to marry these two and, you know, between psychiatry and food? You know, Yasmin, it it happened very... um very naturally. And and hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? So you think you have these grand plans in life and then life kind of takes you by surprise sometimes. I was really following stuff that I loved to do. And coming from a family and a culture where, you know, food and spices and a sense of family and eating together and, and healthy foods, you know, lots of lots of great foods, but mostly healthy foods were kind of inculcated into my DNA. And I ended up in residency and found that, you know, here I was being asked to prescribe medications. And I knew I was being taught these important side effects of the medications, like metabolic side effects and weight gain and changes in libido. But no one was actually talking to people. We were measuring the weight and checking that off in a box on our evaluation. But no one was saying, well, what are you eating? Like, like, have you changed your diet? How 
any of that. And I just thought it was a, a missing piece. And because I cared about food so much, I decided that this was something I wanted to dive deeper into. But really early on in my career, a, a patient kind of really was upset with me thinking that I had caused him to gain weight because of, of a prescription. And I knew from the data it wasn't me. He had come in slightly overweight, but he was drinking this large cup of coffee. And that led to an aha moment because wanting to distract him, I said, well, what did you put in your coffee today? And it ended up being more than a quarter cup of processed creamer, highly processed creamer and eight teaspoons of sugar. And when I sat down with him and kind of calculated the empty calories he was consuming before he even ate his breakfast, I saw his eyes light up for the first time. You know, he said, for, no one's ever told me that, you know, I, I can change that. I, I can change what I put in my coffee, Dr. Naidu, what can you help me? And that really was my, my, one of my biggest aha moments early on. It led me down this path of doing the research in the gut microbiome, unfolding what I could about nutrition. Um, the, the detour to, to culinary school was because Julia Child is my food hero. And along this path, some I discovered that um, literally I used to watch her when, you know, I couldn't afford anything more than public television. And she was on Boston Public, um, uh, our PBS station, you know, with all of her antics around the French, the show still goes on. And I realized that she came to culinary school later on in her career, and that was why she was known. So long answer, but putting all these pieces together took me to culinary school. And I realized that I thought I was just excited to go to kind of live out what she had done. But then I realized interpreting, you know, if I could tell Bill, that patient of mine, what, what else can you do with your coffee? Can you think of a healthier way to do this? Can you think of a healthier way to eat your soup or whatever it was? It was very powerful because you could have that conversation and explain the nutrition. And that's how the idea for my clinic came together. And I was fortunate to be supported by my, my chair who said, you know, you should, you should you should try this. You should go ahead and start evaluating patients. And But I want you to be doing the research alongside. And that was what led to founding this clinic, uh, which ultimately led to, to my book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Amazing. I want to back up a little bit because, you know, being part of the South Asian culture, my, I grew up in a family where mental health was taken very seriously because my dad was a CFO of a psychiatric facility. So he was around that quite a bit. But I know that in a lot of minority cultures that the idea of mental health and uh, psychiatry and going to see somebody for that is quite stigmatized. So uh, how was it for you growing up? Is this something that felt like a natural, like, oh, this is something that is accepted in my family. I want to pursue this. Or, or what was it like for you? So there were two sides to it because in, in the community in which I grew up, um, it was very highly stigmatized, so South Asian community. But in my, my, my close family, my biological family, my mom's a double-bordered physician. My uncles and aunts were mostly physicians and all in the science field. So it was a lot more of an open conversation. So as I moved to study in Boston, I carried that openness with me. But I realized that ingrained in me was the stigma that, that South Asians feel. And this is where I felt, you know, we cook with spices and so much of our, so much of, so much of our everyday life is around food for everyone. Why 
you know, why can't we talk about it more openly? And for me, it helped to destigmatize the, the conversation. And people feel comfortable if you ask them about food. They, it's, a, it's a connection to build. And in mental health, that is not only so important because you're trying to understand how to help them. But I saw food as the lens and almost a way in with people as well. And I have to say that was informed on how I was raised. Hey, everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking seed cycling. What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to Bia wellness.com and that's spelled b-e-e-y-a wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get ten dollars off your first purchase thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode yeah let's go deeper into that so what is the research you talked about the gut microbiome and some of the research that's exploding over the past few years but what is the research saying about the connection between nutrition and things like ocd anxiety and depression yeah. So it starts off with the fact that we, we didn't know for the longest time that the gut and brain are connected. And I know that you all have heard this before, but, you know, the gut and brain are connected. They arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo. They divide up to form two separate organs, which remain connected by the vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve, but acts like a two-way text messaging system. When it's communicating these chemical messages, that also, the, that aspect of the gut-brain connection explains that food-mood connection. So take a condition like OCD. One of the things that, that we found in OCD is that there are natural glutamates in several foods, like tomatoes, parmesan cheese, and others. But individuals with OCD can be very sensitive to these foods, even though they relatively healthy foods. And so... One of the things I will work on with the patient in OCD, and this is based on the research, is cleaning up their diet, but also some of those involve cutting back on some of the foods they would not ordinarily think were healthy because of this effect. When it comes to something like depression and mood, one of the things that people don't realize is say they take a deli, they eat a deli sandwich every day. A common American lunch. Well, there are lots of deli meats and, and uh, processed, highly processed meats um, and meat products that have nitrates and nitrates drive depression. So just a simple that's beside the, you know, maybe higher GI or glycemic load um, kind of bread that they're eating or whatever that food might be. So putting that together, you can, one of the ways I like to start with people is just, you know, how can we kind of tweak a little bit of what you're doing? Because you don't want to overwhelm someone. Let's do 10 things and let's do them by tomorrow. It, no, no one can undergo a habit change in that way. But associating those factors from different conditions are what make nutritional psychiatry powerful. No, I'm curious, you know, looking at anxiety specifically, I know it's completely multifaceted, but clearly, you know, food does play a role in it. 
what are maybe some of the foods that are anxiety triggering from your perspective? I know you won't be surprised by this one, but you know, sugar drives anxiety and people may not always realize it. Um, and, and while our, our, our foods, the standard American diet, which is called SAD for a reason, is laden with high fructose corn syrup and lots of sugar, people may not put those two together because they think, well, a piece of candy is a feel-good food, not realizing the sugar crash afterwards. But one that people overlook a lot are artificial sweeteners. And now, you know, I'm all about everything in moderation. So if you have a little bit of stevia or something, just don't have it in everything and don't be baking tons of baked goods with it because I think that's where you're using a lot of it and you could you could use a, a healthier way uh, to sweeten. And stevia actually showed up a lot for anxiety, worsening anxiety, although it's otherwise natural for anxiety. So I always say to my patients who have anxiety, just maybe cut back a little bit on that or use even a touch of honey, which has other health benefits to it. Um, but this could be an important trigger that you're overlooking. And another one that people don't realize is people think, well, you know, fast foods, it's, I'm, I'm consuming a fried food and I'm, it's going to lead to my, um, a change in my metabolic profile and that all of that is true. But the other most important thing is that these foods are fried in highly processed oils because they're more economical for fast food chains. And those are pro-inflammatory to our gut. And because of that gut-brain connection, when it's pro-inflammatory to the gut, it really leads to neuroinflammation in the brain over time. Wow. That's so fascinating about stevia because there have been, I've been seeing things about the effects of stevia on the gut microbiome, um, but I haven't seen specifically the research on the connection between stevia and anxiety. And I know a lot of us folks in the health food world are really leaning on those things like monk fruit and stevia as sweeteners. Um, so super fascinating. You know, the, 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 there are a few issues with artificial sweeteners. And again, that doesn't mean you can never have an artificial sweetener. It's just be mindful of it. And if you're struggling a little with anxiety, maybe pay attention. They can be a little bit disruptive to the guts. Um, you know, recently erythritol showed up in, in issues around cardiac health. So there's, I always feel with, um, with something that's newer, relatively newer as a food or a substance, we don't always know the research and nutritional science changes like literally every day. So we have to keep up with it. And that's why having in moderation and paying attention to what I call one of the pillars of nutritional psychiatry, which is body intelligence. So say someone with anxiety is having you know, stevia on their coffee, um, stevia on their tea, uh, something in their golden milk at night. And is having you know, maybe some diet soda as well, because they think they're giving up on sugar. Diet soda has a different sweetener, but a lot of those can worsen anxiety. So paying attention to how that makes us feel becomes hugely important in just assessing our mental well-being. You know, I'm so curious because, you know, we know a lot of people who might be kind of addicted to that soda or sugar, right? Sugar is such a hard thing to get out of your life. And, you know, they're maybe sub substituting with stevia and they think it's better, but how do you work with your patients to kind of maybe lessen the sugar intake? Because there's just so many people who find it so difficult to stay away from it, even if it is anxiety producing. I, I agree. And it is really a challenge. That's where that evaluation initially in that conversation becomes hugely important. I have to almost draw out from them, where do they want to start? And most often, especially with times of COVID and just after COVID, 
people have identified at least one thing that's been hard for them. For some people, it's way too much wine because they're working from home and there was no commute and they could literally have a cocktail at five o'clock. I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard that. Then they, for someone else, it was buying a lot of processed packaged foods, which kind of we know processed food sales increase in March, April of 2020 and continued to be increased throughout this time. So they've kind of stocked up on cookies or packaged foods. Um, and for others, it's, you know, having that ice cream every night, which was a, a form of comfort during the many, many years of uh, what what has been going on. So once they've identified the habit, that's my way in to work with them, um, you know, through the psychology of eating, just what can we what what can we change here? So, you know, the ice cream becomes that recipe for um, ice cream made with bananas, which you can bump up your cacao flavanols, which is a great brain food and has been shown to lower depression by adding natural cacao powder and even cacao nibs to a banana ice cream, you know, and made with bananas, maybe a touch of honey, something like that. So it becomes what can what can we take that you're doing? Can you cut back on the ice cream, but start to eat this instead? And for every almost every person, they have at least one identified habit they've gotten into for someone else maybe not exercising you know when when gyms closed it was harder for people and I, I know we're talking a few years ago now but that you can always find something for me identifying that is critical because it's the fulcrum of change and they are aware of it and when you have a conversation it doesn't mean they have to give up sugar entirely or even that artificial sweetener or even the diet soda but they start to notice and this is the most powerful thing they start to notice how their body feels, how their um, their mind feels as they start to make these changes. And that's when they start to want to do more and you can build on a nutritional psychiatry plan with them. So a lot of what we talk about is foods that we want to kind of take away that might be harming the body. But what about foods that we can bring in? What are some foods that can help us with anxiety? Um. I think that's a great question because what I try the best not to do is is tap into that the sort of diet dilemmas and food wars that go in and eat this, not that kind of culture that we live in. So making sure people know that there are tons of things that they can eat. They just want to be careful of those nitrates or those artificial sweeteners and have an awareness of where they're coming from. The foods that I like to start with are a plant forward diet because so much ongoing research is showing that having those a plant slant diet which is what the blue zones call it or a plant rich diet is super healthy because it brings back those phytochemicals to our brain so think of you know the anthocyanins from blueberries or the carotenoids from carrots which interact with gut microbes in a positive way and then form positive breakdown substances called short chain fatty acids in the gut which is super helpful. They cut down on inflammation. They have anti-antioxidant um, anti, uh, properties and all that. So that's one big category. But they also have fiber. There are different types of plants. Like I'll challenge my patients to eat as many different kinds of plants, colors, textures, flavors, because that brings the biodiversity of microbes to the gut. So that's critical. Another huge category is 
um, you know, your leafy greens, because where it's important in mental health is, I sometimes get the eye roll when I talk about salads, but when I share the fact that long studies from decades ago from my mentors at National were done on folate, uh, folate. And so low folate is associated with a low mood. Where can you get folate, which is vitamin B9 in leafy greens, the greener, the better. So a simple thing that you can do is just start to eat those on a more regular basis. A study uh, done at Stanford um, in summer of 2012, well, published in summer of 2021 in Cell, showed that fermented foods, adding them to your diet, reduces inflammation. And we know that inflammation is one of the huge drivers of things, many conditions, but also mental health conditions now. They've linked to things like depression, anxiety, and even cognitive disorders. So even, you know, every culture has a fermented food. So being aware of the added sugars. So if you're buying kombucha, you know, just be aware that they're also sold as beverages, which have a lot of um, sugar sweetener in them. So just be aware of that. But you can find some type of fermented food that you can start to add in uh, to your diet. Um, another group is those omega-3s, which you've heard about, and the plant-based sources, which are things like the chia seeds and flax seeds, hugely important, not only for the fiber and protein, but the short-chain ALAs, and then your, your seafood, like your um, wild-caught salmon and things like that, that you can add in. Those are some of the big, big groups. But then I also like people to understand what, uh, what prebiotics are, because people think prebiotic, they think supplement. But actually, these are foods which you can eat, which nurture those gut microbes. Simple things like the allium family, garlic, leeks, and onions are easy to eat. And then another, another one of my favorite categories is spices. Spices are sugar-free, calorie-free, salt-free. You just buy pure spice and you can buy a little and it lasts a while, but it not only boosts the flavor of your food, uh, which attacks that fallacy that, you know, healthy food can't be tasty, um, but it also has brain benefits. So things like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, um, you know, saffron, um, oregano, thyme, parsley, all of these have lots of brain brain forward and nutrients in them that help us. So when it comes to microbiome diversity, I'm really curious because some of the studies are showing that there's commonalities in patients who have depression um, in their gut microbiome and those mm. who don't have depression are we're seeing more mm. abundance of good bacteria. So can you mm -hmm. talk about this and maybe what it means for the future of nutritional psychiatry and psychiatry, do you think there's going to be targeted therapies specifically for the gut microbiome, maybe using probiotics? What does this kind of mm -hmm. all mean? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. So I think, I think two things. I think that uh, the studies are helping us understand how we can target different mental health symptoms um, through the use of foods or other forms of even supplements when, when necessary. I think that supplements do fill a gap because we don't eat, none of us eats a perfect diet. Um, but I think that they're providing solutions. There is a deeper level of uh, micro, microbiome research that's going on looking at DNA and RNA, that's ultimately over time, companies are going to offer highly personalized precision medicine solutions for individuals. So that's kind of still being researched and um, being conducted, and I think will provide other solutions. But then there's also just looking at the fact that individuals with depression have a different microbial makeup uh, to those who, those who don't or have a slightly healthier, more thriving microbiome. Um, 
I, I think there's a lot of exciting things on, on the horizon for not only nutritional psychiatry, but offering people real world solutions. Because coming back to that stigmatization of mental health, you know, we all eat, we eat, you know, several meals a day, depending on how your diet is laid out. Uh, some people engage in intermittent fasting, but they're still eating some meals a day. And that way, you know, if you are, my feeling is why not optimize what you're doing with your everyday nutrition, because it can help your well-being, it can help your mental well-being, help you feel better, sleep better, feel less anxious. So all of those things. My gosh, I could completely preach and I'm smirking right now because I've been sick, Dr. Naidu, for like a week and I haven't gotten sick in two years. And I was telling Kea before getting on this interview, oh. like my mood has not been like I'm a usually a happy-go-lucky person. I'm very optimistic, and I truly think yes. I've, I haven't been eating properly because I haven't had an appetite. Yes. I feel like everything yes. you're saying, my body is lacking, and I don't feel like myself. And you know, I just want to share that because mm -hmm. I know what it feels like to yes. feel good. So now that I'm kind of not yes. feeling as happy and as old Yasmin, I'm like, there's yes. something missing. And oh, when was the last time I had? a full salad meal, maybe seven days ago. Like I haven't had proper yeah. food. So yeah. it's just interesting to kind of be living and, and going through it myself. Mm. And I'm just now so excited to like make a big salad with everything in it afterwards, but it's amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that you haven't been well, but but that's exactly the lived experience, right? When we something happens and it takes us off path. I was traveling last week and I forgot to pack my snacks. It was, it was local travel, I mean, within the U.S. And I pack, forgot to pack my snacks. I was racing out the door. It was a short trip, but the best I could do at the airport was a banana. And I was really hungry because I, you know, usually have my breakfast or um, days that I maybe eat my breakfast later. And I, I looked at myself and I was like, yeah, this is why, you know, you, you got to remain humble because it happens to all of us. And, and, you know, I was racing through the airport and the best I could do was a banana, but it was better than the cookies they sent me on the planes. <laughs> That's true. No, it's so true. Well, I'd love to now maybe get your thoughts on the amygdala. You know, what is the amygdala and how does that impact our gut health? Yeah. So it's sort of known as the, the, the fear center and it can be, uh, it can be overstimulated when we are say feeling super anxious uh, the way that it relates to the gut microbes is the system is connected, right, through the vagus nerve. So the brain is connected through the gut. And ba basically, the way that I like to explain it is that on days that we're eating healthier foods, when you're eating the healthier salad and, um, you know, all those extra nutrients in, all the foods with the B vitamins and your healthy proteins and healthy fats, the breakdown products are those short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. And when those get formed, they help reduce inflammation and lower, uh, not only lower inflammation, feed that environment with antioxidants and other, other things. So the gut lining, for example, remains stable. It's a single cell layer. But on an opposite day, if you're sort of, you know, going through a phase where you're ordering out a lot or just eating a lot of fast foods, the breakdown products there's the connection, but the breakdown products that impact the gut microbes are more toxic to that gut environment. And they start to pierce and penetrate and damage the single cell lining of the gut. 
that's the beginning of not only dysbiosis and inflammation, but the beginning of conditions that are later called uh, leaky gut or intestinal permeability. When that happens, the more toxic products enter your circulatory system, they start to get around the body, but they also get to the brain. And that's where it starts to, over time, set up things like neuroinflammation. And when you have those toxic substances infiltrating the brain, they start to affect all parts of the brain. Um, so I will literally see individuals who are struggling with anxiety and we start to clean up one thing that they're doing. You know, they'll call me, contact me in, in seven to 10 days um, and say, I'm sleeping better. I'm, I'm getting up and I'm not having as much panic. It's not an immediate effect, but they're starting to notice that difference in their body just by, say, removing that fast food lunch because they're working and they've forgotten to carry lunch and switching it out with, you know, a, an option for lunch that's more of a healthy salad, even if they're buying it but it's a better it's a better food for their gut and for their brain. So, we've been talking about the relationship of the way that the body affects the brain, but I'm also interested in the other way, like how the mind and the brain affect the body. So, can you talk about how trauma, traumatic events, stress impact our total body health? Yeah. You know, trauma is such a such a vast topic and i think that it is so powerful the connection between the the traumatic memories that get laid down in the brain and how that can affect the rest of the body i've seen it become a person exposed to different types of traumas and it present as anxiety as depression uh, the anxiety may reflect as a knot in the stomach uh, nausea if they have an event i had a patient who came to me uh, because she felt just um, uh, actually had diabetes and had problems managing her blood sugar but she was referred to me by her endocrinologist for anxiety and as i sat with her and was evaluating her this was before covid um her little her little um sensor kept going off and she literally would get a bottle of orange juice from her bag and drink it because it was showing her that her blood sugar was low so you know in seeing this i knew i knew something was amiss here but i had to sort of uncover it um, and remember, she was still she was being referred to me for anxiety. But as we started to tease everything apart, she had actually been traumatized in her early life, and she'd never spoken about it. And it came out as just part of a routine evaluation and asking her different questions. And she sort of mentioned it, and she really passed over it because I felt that comfortable and we were in a private setting and things. I, I explored it a little bit to see what she would say. And she said, yes, well, that happened to me. and It was terrible. But, you know, I, I spoke to a school counselor and I felt it was resolved. But she also then burst into tears. And, you know, we, we halted for a moment and we stopped. And, and I said, look, I, I'm here to help you. You can tell me as much or as little as you want. And the problem is she'd really never spoken openly about it. So from being 
from being diabetic and having medical conditions, being referred to me for anxiety, we actually subsequently uncovered this trauma. And the trauma was also related to how she was eating and she was reaching out for foods that were comforting her. And by choosing those foods, they were upping her blood sugar. So her endocrinologist could not catch this wave of her, her needing more insulin, needing less insulin, her blood sugars being all over the place. And over time, as we did a little bit of the emotional work for both, her anxiety subsided, we cleaned up her diet. I mean, he called me six months later and he said, I'm not sure what you did, but her blood sugars are under so much better control. I've lowered some of her larger insulin doses. She's starting to lose weight. Um, she is no longer anxious. But if, when, you, when you think about and unfold the pieces, Anxiety was just how she showed up, was showing up. But in fact, there was a much deeper level of other emotions going on that were all intertwined and being impacted by how she was eating, how she was feeling. And it was almost a puzzle that needed to be solved over time. Wow, that's so powerful. I mean, the body keeps score in so many different ways and however it manifests, it's so unique um, from person to person. It's um it's interesting. I just had my first child about a year and a half ago, my first girl, and I think about all of these things with just social media, the abundance of processed food that's available everywhere. I know she's going to experience her own forms of trauma in some shape or form, but our kids these days are dealing with a lot more than I felt like I was dealing with when I was younger. And I'm wondering, you know, just with your experience of like what is your advice to parents? who are trying to do the right things by their kids. We can't control everything, but we know that these mental health issues, they're gonna come in some shape or form. What, how can we support our kids to be strong and support their bodies? Another good, really great question. You know, I, 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 I'm not trying to create fear, but you know, one of the things as a psychiatrist and as a nutritional psychiatrist that I'm really concerned about is that in this younger age group, of children and adolescents, the second most common cause of death is suicide. So it's really risen, uh, especially as we've emerged from COVID as a very difficult time for them. I think, you know, to your point, social media, the different influences that they're under, um, bullying, interactions at school, what they're eating, what they are given at school, um, are all impacting them. How I advise parents is that I, I want them to remember that there's neuroplasticity and we didn't always know that there was neuroplasticity. So our brains can change. So whatever stage of life they're in, you can actually, one way you can impact that is how they're eating. Um, I love for parents to do, do their best. I'm not saying this is easy to bring children into the food conversation, choosing colors of vegetables, being part of the supermarket or farmer's market trip you know, touching and feeling these foods, um, understanding that if they like fries, can they have zucchini fries or carrot fries? Um, because you can use an air fryer oven and help them understand that this is a is still a food, but it's a whole food. Um, and then other things, you know, helping them prep in the kitchen, making them part of your meal prep day. Uh, 
not always easy to get that into our week, but if you can, you know, having them, whether it's help you wash the strawberries or whatever it is, they can be part of the food conversation. And I think starting that early becomes hugely important. And also, while none of us is a perfect eater, I think that when we eat in front of our kids, we model for them the things that they could be eating or what could be delicious um, involving, you know, as a, as a South Asian child, I was, in, I was involved with in eating spices earlier on, but there are also milder spices that can make their food flavorful, but also are beneficial to their brain. So I think that those are some of the things. Um, and if they, if they're very fixed on a certain food, it's not about fighting them and, you know, getting into the argument. I think we have to almost think out of the box, you know, can we make, add a monster smoothie with lots of leafy greens and even you can even throw in cauliflower on that and it you know you won't see it but you can throw in blueberries and make it a bright a bright purple color you can do lots of things that i wouldn't you know you, you you're tricking them for the better their better health and brain health but getting those veggies in so say if you make vegetarian or um, uh, uh, you know uh, say turkey meatballs you can you can actually add in subtly add in lots of veggies to those and still have it look like a meatball they can still have it in a sauce and you know add different foods to that which are different i think you can do the same with you know the the otherwise sugary treats and try to change that conversation slightly it won't be perfect and it isn't easy but i think the more that we have it top of mind and we're including them becomes hugely powerful to understanding that their brains can change. Oh, yeah. I'm all about tricking my daughter. I will just hide something into a smoothie or a cookie or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Like, Could have done. She's, she's young. She'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be better for her brain. So Exactly. I love that. You know, this got me thinking in terms of just different foods and how it impacts mood. Protein is something that, you know, in so many of these conversations, we talk about how all of us are just under eating protein. Is there, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And does under eating protein impact how we feel in our mood? It definitely does. I do think, though, that I, I like to conclude protein as part of the overarching conversation. Um, I think that we tend to focus on protein the reality is one of the things that we're overlooking, which is fiber, is actually very powerful for our brain because the fiber is what feeds the microbiome. Protein, yes. I think ways to get them in become important. A clean protein powder, if you have the occasional smoothie. Uh, but, you know, they're using clean protein powders and lots of things now, not, not just a smoothie. So finding ways to get that in. You know, making sure that you've worked out the grams of protein that you need and can you get close to that and can you weigh it up with each meal it definitely in fact impacts our level of energy because it's part of a plate of food right or it's part of a, a meal i like to think about the interactions of the different foods on your plate and one of them is protein because you definitely can't you shouldn't be avoiding that um focus energy you know interacting with everything else as you eating that that plate of food becomes critical. So I, I, do, I think that um, I think I'd like Americans to be thinking about, you know, yes, protein is important, but can I also pair that with the healthy fiber? And can I have, you know, more, more of a plant slant in my diet, along with whatever protein source I'm choosing? And can I have enough of it? Uh, not 
not having too much of one meal, having an appropriate portion size, but then adding it up during my day. Things, you know, things that people overlook are things like chia seeds are high in protein. And so even having those types of foods become really helpful to build up the amount of protein you need. When thinking about um, somebody putting your shoes, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who's dealing with something like depression or anxiety, it can feel like now I have to worry about food and this could be another thing that could make my mental health worse. So I'm always considering somebody who maybe <clears throat> excuse me, um, had an eating disorder or maybe something like orthorexia, how can we balance this need to eat better because it can help our brains and help our bodies, but not going overboard to the point where it makes our mental health worse? I feel that orthorexia is uh, sometimes the, the, the one condition which is very challenging in nutritional psychiatry. Um, because people have be, who have orthorexia, which is not yet identified by NADA as a formal disorder, but honestly, clinically, I think it's so prevalent. And the healthy habit really tips over sensibility sometimes, and they find it really hard to take nutritional psychiatry recommendations because they just fixated on a certain exclusion or elimination of a certain food group or other things. So it can be very recalcitrant to actual intervention. When it comes to eating disorders, if it's, if it's an active eating disorder, binge eating disorder, uh, bulimia, anorexia, any of those, it's very hard to work with the individual on a nutritional psychiatry plan. So most often, if someone has an active eating disorder, I'll work with other clinicians to advise on things like sometimes it's residential treatment, sometimes it's family therapy associated with all of this, but really intense work that helps. Sometimes it could take years for them to feel ready. They almost have to heal that relationship with food and then be able to say, sure, I can, I can build this healthy nutritional psychiatry plate. Because if not, it can be more stressful to them and more damaging and more disruptive and more traumatizing because they're in a, in a place in their mind and their body where they either counting every calorie or they measuring things and it can be disruptive. So you've, you've, it's got to be um, the, right, the, the right combination um, to be able to actually impact uh, and effect change. So a, a very important part, actually. Totally. I um, I wanted to ask about maybe some foods that you make sure that you incorporate every single day for your mental health. So if there were maybe five foods that you would tell somebody, you really want to focus on getting these foods every single day, what would they be? Well, number one um, are spices, because I can travel with them. I can keep them in my kitchen and they impact, you know, I will add uh, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper to my golden chai. I will add it in super smoothie or tea. I will do tons of stuff with it, say on a day that I'm not able to cook because I'm at an event. The spices of different kinds, different flavors, and I go through that in every chapter of This Is Your Brain on Food. That's one big category. Another is those leafy greens. I always prep 
or have uh, from the from the supermarket or if I can get to the farmer's market, a ton of different kinds of leafy greens. And I like to go off the beaten path, you know, besides the romaine lettuce and the arugula, I love the dandelion greens or the watercress when I can get access. Um, Another uh, big group that I always keep because of the powerful effects in my brain are the cruciferous vegetables. So as much as the, you know, the broccoli or the cabbage or the cauliflower that I can get, sometimes I get them frozen because frozen foods are, as long as they don't have added uh, salt, syrup, sugar, sodium, um, sorry, uh, they, they're pretty healthy. So I always keep that because I do travel and then I have something frozen that I can I can prepare into a meal. The fourth is uh, I, I was raised plant-based and vegetarian. Uh, the rest of my family is not vegetarian. So I always have healthy proteins on hand. Uh, so whether that's, you know, wild-caught salmon and, you know, organic tofu, uh, things like that are always important. And then the other category is fermented foods. So I love to have, you know, kimchi uh, on hand. I like to have kefir because I will actually uh, add it on occasion when I have a smoothie. I'll use it even when I make a yogurt, um, you know, savory yogurt. I'll add in a little bit of kefir because there's a little bit of fermented food. So I love that category because it not only for me helps the flavor of my food, it just, it makes it more interesting and I can change up my salad bowl or I can add it to whatever I'm eating. So those are things I, I try to always keep on hand. Um, and, it, you know, some of them I keep frozen if stocked in case I'm traveling and I arrive late and don't have, have a chance to go to the supermarket that day. Yeah, I love all of those foods. And, you know, coming from the South Asian background, I have a lot of people in my family who are also vegetarian. And the one question I get all the time is, well, do I have to give up my rotis? Do I have to give up my rice? Do I have to give up all those things? So what do you say to that? Yeah, you know, I I, I grew up uh, and, and uh, you know, rice is very much a part of the diet. So the way that I think about it is a few different ways. Um, for one thing, there is some science around um, heating and cooling of things like a baked potato, um, rice, pasta. So you, you cook the product, you allow it to cool, and you actually literally eat it, reheat it the next day. Now, there might be pushback from other groups that say, oh, you shouldn't do it that way. But as long as it's refrigerated, that to me is one way that you lower the glycemic index of a food like rice that also lowers the glycemic index of things like a potato because of the process of the formation of resistant starch. Um, I've tried it with, on occasion, a, a recipe that I developed um, for mac, a healthier version of a mac and cheese. So I cut back on the amount of the dried pasta I used, added in veggies, but that I used that technique to cook it cool it and then make the dish the next day. So that's one thing. Interestingly, adding acid. So uh, sushi, for example, when they make the rice for sushi, uh, chefs will add a different type of uh, acid, usually a certain type of vinegar. And that actually was shown to reduce the glycemic index. So that's another little tip to maybe, um, you know, an, a different acid could be like a lemon rice. So you cook, you cool the rice, add your spices and, you know, have a squeeze of lemon or, or that type of flavoring to it, that could be, a, could be different. And the other thing I say to 
say to a South Asian certainly is, you know, just cut back on your portion. So so flip that ratio of the rice to the vegetables and the, the meats or whatever you're eating on your plate, add in those veggies because they're going to be satiating and cut back a little bit. And you still have it because you're used to it, but have less of it. Um, with breads, it's, it's a little bit more complicated because unfortunately, even our delicious homemade breads do do have the refined flowers, right, that they they made from. And that, unfortunately, can up the glycemic index. It's not actually so much the uh, ghee or the other things that, that it's, it's, it's the, the fact that it's a refined flour, and that can be a little bit tricky. Um, and I haven't, you know, the nutrition science for me hasn't shown up in that yet to help me change it around to make it different. Um, so I say to people, you enjoy it, just don't, maybe cut back on it a little bit. Um, I know that there are lots of, you know, alternate kind of uh, low carb way of making these now, but that doesn't appeal to the, you know, a typical, say, an aunt in my family who's used to, you know, um, hot breads and naans and things like that. It doesn't, you know, it's tough to change up a recipe like that. So I usually ask them to have it in moderation and then use some tricks around the rice. Absolutely. I love the idea of just crowding it out with the good stuff. So it's like, hey, still have those things if they appeal to you, but where can we add more of the, you know, colorful plant foods and things like that? Well, Dr. Naidu, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier in the interview that nutritional psychiatry is always changing, which is what a fun and exciting field to be in. What is your hope for the future of nutritional psychiatry and where it's going? You know, I spoke about um, my clinic and how it was formed earlier, and it's it's been a while now. It's been a, it's been a beat, and you know, my book has been out, and things have evolved and changed, and and I will certainly be updating things as I go along. I think the direction, and I've noticed that difference in when I first started, is things are highly more personalized. And we are moving in this direction of precision medicine. And that's why I'm really excited about this ongoing gut microbiome research and companies that are looking at not just, you know, the DNA, but they're looking at things like, well, we know broccoli is a healthy food, but will you respond to broccoli the same way that I will? And they're finding differences. And so they're looking at different components of the microbiome. And that to me is very exciting because if we can ultimately find solutions for the individual in a in a quick way, um, in a fast way, meaning, you know, not weeks, but, you know, uh, maybe not a blood test, but checking, testing the microbiome and having meaningful solutions come back to them. I think that that can be very powerful. Some, you know, I think that um, even supplementing to make sure that we're getting those nutritional gaps filled becomes important and then building out that healthy diet around it, you know, adding in those, uh, those, those healthier foods, uh, will, will help that as well. So that's kind of what I'm most excited about the direction we, we hope to go in. Well, we're super excited for your next book. Can you remind us again when it comes out in the title? So my next book is coming out, uh, in December. December 26th of 2023. My current book is out. It's called This Is Your Brain on Food. My next book, we will be announcing the title shortly, but the focus of the book is what I really studied during the pandemic, which is how can we use nutrition and lifestyle measures to lower anxiety? 
And that's the, the focus of it because I found that all across all demographics um, in my clinic, that's what I was seeing. And I feel like almost every human that has come through these years has some touch of angst, worry, anxiety, or stress that they're living with. So I felt it was important to offer solutions, and I'm excited to announce it later this month. Amazing. We're really looking forward to reading it. I know everybody can use that book. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. And we'll share all about you in our show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you, Kaya. Thank you, Yasmin. It was wonderful to speak to you both and actually meet you guys.